Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. I want to just speak into um, some things with like, the vision of who we are. And my, my ultimate desire is that everyone here would really understand who we are as a community. Um, I want us to... I want us to be knit together, as Paul says in Colossians, at a heart level. All right, so our, our unity runs much deeper than just our schedules aligning for a few hours every week. But the Bible says we are bound by the Spirit and that I, I desire that our hearts are really knit together. And part of that is, is that we understand the words and the things that God has spoken over us, that we can run after it together. And so I pray that that would happen this morning. Um, 2 Timothy 1.14, Paul writes to Timothy and says, By the Holy Spirit in you, or in us it says, to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. And, uh, and the ultimate good deposit is salvation itself. But I, wanna, I believe that God has deposited things into us, into you, your calling and specific purposes. That is a good deposit God has given. And we want to steward that. We want to guard it, as Paul says. We want to protect it. We want to make sure that that serves as a filter for everything we're doing in life so that even when good things come along, if it's ultimately going to take us away from the deposit that God has put in us, then that's how we make decisions. And so I want you to better understand the, the good deposit, just the flavor of, of, of who we are. So uh, if you want, um, you can turn there now. We'll come in a few minutes, but you can come to Second Chronicles chapter 5. We'll jump in in just a moment. All right, so we're just going to cover big picture. I want to I brand our hearts with uh, our, the DNA of this house. And, uh, and 2 Chronicles 5, really chapter 6, is going to be the, the heart of it. So if you're new here, this will help. If not, um, you've been around, it's still just good to reinforce. But we ultimately, we want to build a house that's responding to God's desire for his house. Um, he has a desire. And ultimately, in Matthew 21, when Jesus walks into his temple, it's a text we circle around a lot. Jesus walks in, and he's met with, there's trade, and there's, there's economic drive in his people's hearts. But ultimately, what he has ult- really desired is not, he's not seeing it, which is that his house would be a house of prayer, it says, for all nations. And, and that's his ultimate, I believe, burning desire, is that his house would be a house of prayer. And so we, we full and wholeheartedly believe in all of the ministries that we have. If we don't engage in them, we're not a New Testament church. (laughs) People won't reach full discipleship. We need children's ministry, alpha, evangelism. We need the whole, we need all of it. But I want you to understand for us, there is kind of like a home base for us. It's, It's what gives life to every other ministry. And we believe it's directly connected to Jesus' desire for his house, which is before preaching or anything else, it would be a house of prayer. And, and when I think of prayer early on, like years ago, when I think of house of prayer, my first thought was a mechanical, like, function. Like, a house of prayer is just, we're just drilling out this one activity over and over and over again. And although there is an activity, the house of prayer is less, I think, about an activity, and it's more about relationship. And that's what I want you to think about. When Jesus comes in and says, my house should be a house of prayer, I want you to think prayer unto communion, unto relationship. It's a house that's centered on the presence of God. It's a house that is unto encounter, that desires to gather the saints, as Psalm 50 verse 5 says, to meet the Lord, to hear his voice, 
to be touched by God, and ultimately to live from that place. So our, like, longing is real simple, is we want to establish a house where regularly people are coming before God in their priesthood identity, the veil's been torn, to behold the face of God, to see him, to hear his voice, to be transformed by his presence, and to go out and to release that which he has deposited into you, into your families, into your workplace, into your community, or whatever it may be. Like, I, I believe wholeheartedly, like, this is the desire for God for his, for his church. It's called a meeting place, a dwelling place, a resting place, and... Ultimately, what we've done is, is the prayer room has been a practical way to walk that out. And so Thursdays and Fridays, morning and night, we're, we're gathering people before God, and we're keeping incense, or, or we're, we're allowing incense to be burning on that altar morning and night. We, we want an offering to be lifted up. We want the greatness of God's name to be on our lips 24-7. And there's a lot of biblical precedent to that, but I want at any point... I would love to see at some point every day of the week in this community, morning and night, you could come in and you know that we begin our day breaking silence and breaking the dawn with describing the greatness of God. And then before we go to bed, uh, once again, we come before Lord and we meditate on the power of God. What's that? What's that? That's okay, yeah. <laughs> um, that's all right. Kiddos. Kid life. Um, so we want to be present center. We, we believe the presence of the Lord. Why do we do this? First and foremost, well, it's God's desire, but also it, we believe the presence of the Lord is transformative. Like what changes lives, guys, is through the disciplines that we engage in is really meeting with God. And I believe, and so do many others here, that it's the presence of the Lord that will transform this city. Um, there's things that are happening, that the plans that they're doing, they call it revitalization. I think there's potential good. There's also a lot of things that will, could be challenging to that as well. But we all know as believers, real revitalization is not outside in, it's inside out. And no matter how much we change infrastructure and bring in even money, what ultimately needs to chart is the chart changes the human heart. And, and I believe it's the presence of God that, do, that does that. And we have seen in with our own eyes over the last five or six years as a church, we have seen the presence of the Lord transform addicts in this place. We've seen prodigals get touched by the presence of God. We've seen the presence of the Lord deliver people from demons. We've seen God's presence break the strongholds and the power of, of uh, witchcraft and warlocks. I mean, people who have come and confessed, I was sent on assignment to this church. We've seen them be touched by the presence of God. We've seen faith get imparted to atheists and agnostics who said, I don't have any belief, but the presence of God had changed them. I've seen the sexually broken find wholeness and purity and be able to forgive even people that have abused them through the presence of God. I've seen families get restored. The list goes on and on, but it's by his presence. <laughs> it's so important that without, without that key, guys, we're just, what distinguishes or separates us from anything else? Moses says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, how are we separate from the other people? What makes us different than any other social institution without his presence? We say, well, we're, we're unto helping people. There's a lot of non-for-profits that are unto helping people. Yeah, but we're unified around the core beliefs, and we're, we all believe in the same thing, you know, th these, these tenets. There's a lot of good organizations that also believe in the same tenets. Granted, not the gospel, but still, they're unified in what they believe. What separates us from any other social service that you can't find is that we are the holy habitation for God. 
that, that you can find and, and find food in all these other places, although the church is meant to do that. You can find that in a lot of other avenues. But if you want to touch from God, you must come to the house of the Lord. You must come to his temple. And so we, we long to provide a place where people would encounter the one thing that really distinguishes us, which is God himself dwelling and abiding. I know that we, the abiding presence of God is in every believer. I know that. And I also know that God's omnipresent. But I'm talking about the manifest presence of God. That's, that's distinct, guys. I'm talking about you walk in, and if you've been in those environments, it's like filled with expectation for the impossible. People come in and begin to weep because they sense the Lord, or they're filled with hope or joy because they're sensing God's presence. This is what we long for, <laughs> that it would be so rich, so intense, and it would extend beyond just these gatherings that lives would, lives would be changed. There's stories in church history of geographical regions being so flooded with the manifest presence of God that just just stepping into those territories brought people to their knees. There's, I, I doesn't think of this, but there's a revival, I think it was like 1858. It started with one man praying in New York City. The, it, it got so strong. The presence of God was just changing so many lives and businesses. Everyone was shutting down to pray that ships, there's testimonies of ships that were off the coast of New York City coming in with cargo. They would get touched by the presence of God. By the time they got to shore, they were all repented and all became believers in Jesus Christ. They said there was an actual, like, once they crossed into the region, they, it's like it was, it was glory. They were, they, were, they were touching glory of God and being changed. And these things are real. They're in scripture. They're in church history. And we long for that. And and we want to be a people that bring people into this. Um, Leonard Ravenhill, I was listening to something he was sharing. This was an older clip. But he was sharing a story that uh, I think it must have been his friend who was talking to a, a, a Chinese man who the Chinese man was not a believer. And basically he was talking to him uh, just about faith and whatnot. And, uh, and the Chinese man was saying he had read the Quran and he had read all of these sacred texts and he had read many fascinating and amazing things. Um, in all of these different books of beliefs. And then the, the Christian man said, well, have you ever read the New Testament? And he said, actually, I have read the New Testament. And so the, the Christian man asked, he says, well, you have to tell me, what did you find most fascinating when you read the New Testament? And he was expecting the guy would say something like the virgin birth or that Jesus like literally died and rose again. That's pretty incredible. But he said, oh, that's an easy one. After reading all these sacred texts and whatnot, there, there's something that stood out about uh, Christianity uh, that was so unique and fascinating. He said it was in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's like, Ephesians chapter 2, what was in there? And he says, well, it says in your Bible that in former times and past times, you used to walk according to the ways of the world, that you were once bound by darkness and a slave to sin and under the power of the rules of this age. It, but he says, but by the end of that very chapter, it says because of the blood of Jesus, you have now become the holy habitation for your God. And he said the Chinese man looked at him and says, does your God dwell inside of you? <laughs> he said, I've read many amazing things, but one thing that separates Christianity is it is the only religion that claims their God comes inside of them and makes his home in them. And we, guys, we as, as a corporate community, we are the holy habitation for God. The, the question is, does our gatherings, does the way that we build things here, does it express that truth? Do people come in and say, I've just stepped into something different. I've stepped into the tabernacle of Yahweh. <laughs> I'm in the holy of holies here. I'm in the garden of Eden. Like, is, is what we're building all unto people experience? What would it look like for a community to be so presence-centered 
that literally when you walk in, those are the things that people are, are thinking in their mind is this is different. And, and what's one of the things I love is that people have, have said that, not to boast, but people have said that, and, and that's because we're, that's what we desire, <laughs> to really see um, what it means to be the, the house of, of God and his resting place. Um, without his presence, I was just thinking, without his presence, whatever we're doing, it's like rearranging the deck chairs on a sinking ship. <laughs> In other words, if we are not gathered on the glory of God and leading people to touch and taste, all we're doing is rearranging people's lives, giving them new vocabulary, new habits, new friends, uh, new whatever, but ultimately the lives are still sinking ships. The, the soul, like the spiritual appetites and affections remain untouched. Like the, the barren soul is still thirsty. We can have all of these new things, but the ship is still sinking, but it's when his presence is everything. It's when we have a unified people saying, God, we come to meet with you where, where people's lives are changed. And so all of that to say, it's more than I wanted to share, but we labor to build a house for his presence. We labor to create a space for him to rest and, and really manifest himself. And if you're like, wow, that's really beautiful, it is, but it's also very challenging. <laughs> and if I could be honest and be vulnerable, it's really challenging. There are, when you try to establish a place that's really desiring to respond to the voice of God and be led by him, um, it's, it, it leads to a lot of awkward moments. <laughs> you know, you're in gatherings and things can get awkward, things can get uncomfortable, things can get unconventional. Things are like, come on, how long are we going to be silent? Like, let's keep moving, let's go, or why we keep, why are we saying this? And not that we're, not that, not that that's always a sign that we're getting things right, but I want you to know that what we're really designed to do is not just go through like a rigid thing. We're really in relationship with a living God. And we're really trying to respond to what he's doing in a room. And sometimes it gets, sometimes it's challenging. Um, sometimes uh, that puts off newcomers. I, I understand that. It's, it's, it's really new. And you, we try to pass through those moments as best we can. But I just believe if, if you'd submit your heart to it, you'll find that on the other side is beautiful encounters. And it's what our hearts long for. Again, a lot of people have said, you know, it's, it's really different here. And then they say, you know what, I think I want to join into this community. <laughs> and then what you, I've, I've actually seen after a few weeks, they're like, this, I can't do this. It's, it's almost like the concept of different is really good. But when you step into it, that different starts hitting your life. And you realize, like, to really be in a place that's at least trying to really be under the leadership of Holy Spirit and not just be going through religious format it's like it, it's different and it starts touching a lot of our old like systems and thought patterns when we enter in right so anyways um we want to be a present center people so second chronicles chapter five i'm going to read the end of it and then we're really going to come into chapter six so i'm going to be looking at verses 13 and 14 in chapter five and i believe oh awesome they put it on the screen too if you don't have it so I want to use this text to just give language to pretty much everything that I just shared, okay? And then um, we'll go to Malachi chapter 1 to close it out. There'll be a beautiful practical application of this. So here's kind of the background, what we're picking up. This is such a significant moment in the history of God and his people. David has passed away, and his son Solomon has stepped up and is now the king of Israel. Now, if you know, David... David is really set apart, not because he was perfect, but because David went after something that is very connected to God's deepest desire for the earth. 
What did David want? Psalm 132, it's, it is said of David that he made a vow to God. It said, I will not rest until I find a resting place for you on the earth, a dwelling place. David understood something. What does God want more than anything? To rest and dwell with his people. This is why Jesus, I believe, sits on the throne of David and is the son of David. Not that by any means David is above Jesus, but the fact that David tapped into something that was so connected with, with God's desire that he is like eternally remembered and Jesus is eternally connected to his ministry. David was a prototype and started something that Jesus would ultimately fulfill. That Jesus took his ministry, David's ministry, to a deeper level. That we now could be the resting and dwelling place of God. And so here you have David, he's, he's longed to create a place for God to dwell. Again, it's old covenants and fear, but that's what he's after. He passes away, but before doing that, he makes preparations, gets all the resources ne- needed for Solomon. And now here, Solomon has finally built this temple, this dwelling place. And uh, Solomon is going to bless it, and he's going to dedicate it. And we're going to pick it up at the end of chapter 5 where this is happening. They've just brought the ark in. Okay, The ark in the old covenant is like Jesus in the new. It's a little bit oversimplification, but it's helpful. The presence of God gets put in this temple, and he's going to bring the priest, who that's what we are, new covenant. They're going to come around, and they're going to worship, and the glory is going to fall. Verse 13, 2 Chronicles 5. It says, And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers, these are the priests, to make themselves heard in unison, so they're unified, one voice, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise the Lord, and here's what they sang, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, sidebar, Johnny was just teaching this week in a prayer room training that this, these two, uh, this like chorus, if you will, you'll notice it's always attached to the outpourings of glory. Why? I need to look more into that. But there's something about the goodness of God. Because when Moses asked, show me your glory, he made his goodness pass before him. Um, but whatever it is, there's something on this verse, uh, this, this phrase, for he is good for his steadfast laughs, uh, love endures forever. Ark is here. Presence of God is here. Priests are coming around worshiping. They lift up this song, and now look what happens. It says, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. That's the Shekinah glory of God coming. Verse 14 so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now, this is an inferior covenant. <laughs> this is the Old Testament, right? I don't know about you, but I have to keep telling myself, remind myself, that I, I often think about this wrong. I usually think of, man, I wish I could be back in the good old glory days, <laughs> But the reality is, is that what the Bible says is that this was a mere shadow to the substance that we would have. That the priests of old were actually longing for what we could do as new covenant priests. That rather than coming around a box, which no doubt God blessed and came and rested upon, that box, if you will, the ark, we become the embodiment of it now. The ark of the covenant lives inside of us because of what Jesus has done. Which means, if this is possible in the old covenant, guys... How much more is it possible to have moments with God like this where his glory is so strong that no one can stand to minister before him? <laughs> this is like I long for gatherings uh, where we're, we're worshiping and engaging God as his priest. The veil's been torn and the presence of God, like the Shekinah glory just comes and rests. And I can tell you this. I wish I could hear these men's lives that fell on the floor, but I, I know this. They were never the same after that. 
Like you could have told them God's great, God's awesome, God's this, God's healer. It's totally different. We talk about this a lot. It's totally different when the author of your faith, Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, comes and meets you and starts writing things about who he is on your heart. That's where it's like, oh, my goodness, he's great. <laughs> like, he's awesome. Like, I've seen him. I've touched him. Like, I've heard his voice. We need a restoration of the greatness of God in his house. I feel that. <laughs> I feel that deeply. So the priests are, are lifting this, this praise up. The glory of God falls. And I want you to know that what they had here, we can have in greater measure. May this provoke in you and me and us a hunger. How do I know that? Think about this. I've mentioned this in the past, but it's, it's really important. It's, it's for this text. When Moses built his, temp, uh, his tabernacle in the wilderness, it says the cloud fell, the glory. It fell. And it says no one could enter in, not even Moses. Solomon builds this temple. The priests, glory falls. Priests cannot enter in. Acts chapter 2, they're in the house of the Lord in the upper room, and the glory of God falls. Now, based on the precedent of Scripture, what we would expect is all the disciples would have to get up and walk out of the house. (laughs) But that's not what happens. They remain in the house where the glory falls. In fact, not only do they remain in the house, but they themselves become filled and consumed by the very presence of God. How is that possible? The blood of Jesus. He's better than any goat or animal. And because of his sacrifice, we can be consumed and filled by this glory. So what happens now is this glory falls. God's temple is filled because God's temple is meant to be filled with his glory. Who's the temple? Us. We weren't meant to have a peace. We weren't meant to walk around dry. We were meant to be consumed and filled. Never once was God's temple meant to be a little bit of God. (laughs) Not that we're getting degrees, but never once was God meant to be a little piece. He was meant to fill it and consume it. And so as the glory falls and fills the temple, now Solomon gets up and he's going to kind of pass through the moment. And he's going to speak about what's happening. And he's gonna, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 5. I'm going to read verses 5 to 11. And what I really want you to hear is Solomon's language regarding the temple because it really gives clear language for what, we, as the house of God, are meant to be marked by, primarily. He's going to repeat this phrase over and over. Let's read verse 5. Second Chronicles 6, verse 5. It says, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel, ready, in which to build a house that my name might be there. Do you guys see that? That my name might be there, and I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. You're going to see a repetitive theme, and hopefully by the end you're back, we get the point. Verse 6, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. And I have, I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Verse 7, now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house For my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Verse 9. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, but your son shall be born to, to, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Verse 10. Now the Lord has fulfilled this promise that he made. For I've risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I've built the house for the name of the Lord the God of Israel. 
And there I've set the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. All right. We've, uh, we've taught about this in our prayer room, but I want us to all see this. Six times the house of the Lord is mentioned here. And what is mentioned every single time the house of the Lord is mentioned? The name of the Lord. And what you find is that the temple of God is meant to be marked and set apart for the name of the Lord. It's an interesting way to phrase this. We've been talking about the presence, but ultimately what Solomon's saying here is, Lord, we know that your desire is that you would have a house, and the ultimate thing that your house is housing is your name. So we, as New Covenant temples, are primarily built to house the name of the Lord. Yes? Now, what exactly does that mean? The, the word name is Shem, and I want you to listen to this. It means reputation, fame, glory, renown. Okay, so the name of the Lord on one side, his name is direct connection and expression of his beautiful and glorious character and nature. His names are actually revelations of who he is. So his name is an extension uh, and the very language of his glorious character. That's true. However, when it speaks of the name of the Lord, it's not just an expression of his character. It goes one step further. The name of the Lord is also a way to say God's glory has gone public. What I mean by that is we say it in our expression like this. I'm trying to make a name for myself. What are we saying? I'm trying to display something to the public about who I am. I want something of my life to go forth to others. Or we may say, oh, that's a name brand, meaning that brand has a really good reputation. Everyone knows that name brand. It stands apart from all the other brands. Yes? When you look throughout Scripture, you will find that when God acts and moves, there's often a phrase that is stuffed in there somewhere you can easily bypass over. And it is this. You say, why? Why did God do that? He says, I have done this for my great name's sake. And what he's saying is not only did that action reveal my nature, but, it but that action has caused my name to go forth meaning my glory to go forth, my reputation to be upheld, my fame to be known, yes? So when we talk about establishing a temple and a house like us for the name of the Lord, we're talking about creating a place that when people walk in, they encounter the glory and greatness of God. When people walk into this place, that his awesomeness would be put on display, that from this place, the glory of God is being made known and going public. Like you come in and when people walk into this, what they're noticing and what they're recognizing is God is famous here. His glory is enclosed here. His awesomeness is on display here. It's not just that these things are, are like we're not, we don't just know these things. They're, we're we're a, a house of which they're going out, which is so important for priesthood because we declare the greatness of God. When people walk into the house of the Lord, they should encounter the name of the Lord. In other words, they should come in and say, yeah, music's good. Yeah, I enjoyed the message. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's in a tent. <laughs> but ultimately, the Lord is there. That's a house that's built for the name of the Lord, where his glory goes forth, his fame. Like everything we do, the preeminence of Christ, that should be central what people should see and encounter and know is that God is in our midst. We want the presence of the Lord to be so 
primary. To be a house that houses the name of the Lord is, again, a place where his glory goes forth. People encounter it. I so believe, guys, and we're going to see it in Malachi 1 in a second. I'm just priming you for this house being marked by the name of the Lord, but I so believe in this hour, in all the brokenness we see in our nation, we need houses that are rising with priests that understand the greatness of his name, so that in the midst of so much confusion, where Jesus is a one, one among many other gods, and he's this and he's that, they would come into a place where there's a right revelation and declaration of who he is, that the knowledge of the glory of God would be resting in this place, that when people come in, they would say, this is who God really is. There would be no questions. <laughs> They wouldn't get half answers and half truths, but they would understand fully who he is. Hebrews 2.14, in light of that verse, what I just said, Hebrews 2.14 says there's a great promise of where all things are going. It says, in the end, the earth will be covered, filled, saturated with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Just as the waters cover the sea, so the earth will be filled, covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. What that means is there is a day coming where on the earth, no one, not one single person will ever again question who God is and what he's like. The glory that fell in chapter 5 where the priest couldn't stand to minister, there's a day coming where that glory will cover the earth. And we with glorified bodies will be able to be in that <laughs> and, not, and be able to function. But the point is that's where everything is going. And what I believe with my whole heart is that in between Jesus and the fulfillment of Habakkuk 2.14, God has put his temple, the church, and has commissioned them to be a prophetic picture and preview to the world to show them where all things are going. The church is meant to be a temple that creates an environment where the knowledge of the glory of God is so strong that we're beginning to give people a taste of where it's going, where one day this glory you're experiencing in this house will literally cover the earth. That's what we're meant to build, that someone could come and say, wow, this is where all things are heading. And they'd be transformed in that, in Jesus' name. And I believe this is so connected to the house of prayer because as we'll see in a moment, it's the priests who were given the primary function in the Old Testament of upholding and maintaining the greatness of God's name. And if the priests lost sight of it, the temple lost sight of the greatness of God's name. And the nation would begin to unravel. And you and I are priests in the new covenant. Amen? It's really good news. We need greatness to be restored of God in this house. The, in my life, the awe of God. I believe worship you know, well, it's one of my pet peeves, but I believe we should be free and relaxed in a sense in worship. But I, I do think sometimes the expression, um, we have a casual worship environment, it's usually meant to be enticing. I, I don't believe we're supposed to be rigid or anything. I, I believe there's joy, there's fun, all of that. But I think casualness is one of the worst ways to describe a worship experience. If you look scripturally, it doesn't, again, I'm not talking about being religious and stuffy. But if you look scripturally, when Moses got before the presence of God, shoes came off. <laughs> like when, 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 when Job got before the presence of God, it says his lips were silenced. When Isaiah got before the presence of God, he began to shudder. So did the temple walls. The last thing we should be before God is just kind of like casual. <laughs> now, that's, that's joyous. That's like, man, we're his children. We're with Abba. I, I mean, all of that. But it's the last thing from casual. We're before Yahweh. And this is what I mean, a house that is bringing back, like, a house for his name, this holy, delightful tremble comes back. 
And it, it just, it changes lives. Um, man, I want to share, before we go to Malachi 1, I kind of said this before, but I feel led to say it. Caesar's actually been really ministering to me on this, talking about building a house where his glory, the name of the Lord, the glory of God. He's been getting ministered to, uh, I think it was Mike Bickle, he said. But it's kind of what I said before, that uh, building a house for his presence, it's beautiful but challenging as well. Uh, there is, I think the phrase that, that he was saying is, there is a dark side to the glory of God. <laughs> what I mean by that is not immoral or evil by anything, any means like that. But we can talk about building a house for the glory and be like, yes, the greatness of God. But what you'll find is that when his glory comes in, the stronger that gets, it will often multiply and intensify the state of our hearts. Meaning if a heart is soft and hungry, it'll get even hungrier in the glory. However, scriptures also show that when the glory picks up and the presence gets stronger, if the heart is hardened, if the heart is bitter towards God, if it's kind of going through motions, there's also potential for that to get even more intense as well. That you, Jesus actually says when in the places where there was most glory displayed, miracles, all this stuff, he talks about the judgment being even more severe. There, there's, there's potential that when glory, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll be wrong, I've been there, the heart is is just really like not in the right place with God. And you come into an environment where the presence of God is so strong. And I've actually gotten more critical, bitter, and angry in those gatherings. Now, thankfully, that's not God's desire. His desire is to bring us out of that. But the point is that while we long for that, we should be aware <laughs> that when we come in these environments, there's, there's the like, yeah, glory side. There's also like the glory touches our foundations. And if there's cracks in foundations, the weightiness of his glory will show that. It's love that he does that, but I don't want anyone to run out because that begins to happen. That's, that's what I've seen. Man, so, again, so many people have said this place is different, but then they experience, I think, some of those weighty moments where you can't just go through the functions and form. God's actually touching things, and rather than submitting, they leave and get bitter and come up with a reason as to why. And not that we're perfect or anything like that, but I, I really do believe to pastor some of that, I think that's a large part what begins to happen. And if we would just kind of submit and walk through that, we'd find breakthrough on the other side. Amen. All right, let's come to Malachi 1. We'll finish right here. We'll close this out here. Again, I feel like we're just refreshing ourselves of who we are as we jump into many things and close out the year strong. So Malachi chapter 1, I think just for time's sake as well, um, this is a chapter that's been really like deep in my heart for a few years. So I'll just share one verse this morning in a minute. Um, before that, I'll kind of summarize this. This really, I think, gives us practical playing out of building a house for his name and, and what happens when we don't as, as his priest, all right? So just, just stay with me. You want to kind of hear this backstory, and then we'll read this one verse and, and pray it out together. So Malachi, um, the summary of Malachi is that Israel is in a state. It's in one of his worst states. It's, it's moral ruin, if you will, has reached an all-time high. Um, God, through Malachi, is addressing many things in Israel. He talks about um, there's there's idolatry, which is pretty, pretty common when Israel gets like this. There's lawlessness. There was fraud. They were stealing from one another. Uh, adultery was at an all-time high. There's all these things going on. And God, God is, is going to address it. But I want you to hear this. This is so important, that when God comes to a nation that seems to be unraveling in, in terms of morality, I would think, God, you're going to go right to, like, those parts. 
You're going to go right to the government. You're going to go right to the educational field. But where God first goes is to his house. He first goes to his house. Now, it's not because God doesn't care about those other things, but I think God actually shows how significant his people are and his churches, if you will, to the restoration revival of the nation. That if his church gets in order, if his priests get in order, if what's happening in his house comes back in order, there's a blessing that ripples out to the nation around. So he comes, so God comes, and he doesn't come to all the peripheral things. He comes right to his temple, and specifically he comes right to his priests, which is what we are. I want you to just think of all these New Testament parallels. And when he comes to them, here's what he accuses the priests of. He says, you have despised my name. Now just think about this. What is the, what is the purpose of the temple? To build a house for the name of the Lord. Now what we're going to read is a priesthood that is despising the name of the Lord. So in his temple, his name is being despised. What does that mean? Despise does not mean hatred. It doesn't mean to be repulsed by God's name. So this wasn't outright hatred. Despise means to treat ordinary, to treat common, to treat standard. So I'll give you an example. It says Esau despised his birthright. You guys ever read that story? That doesn't mean Esau hated his birthright. What it means is he didn't understand how precious his birthright was. He lost the sense of the value and sacredness of what he had. And what God is saying to the priests here is you despise my name, meaning you've lost sight of the greatness of my name. You've lost sight of how precious, you've lost sight of the awesomeness. It's no longer like in your hearts and in your gatherings. And what's really interesting, guys, and I, this is like all in this first chapter, what's interesting is God says to the, to the priest, he says, but you ask, how have we despised your name? Which tells me they were disconnected to the true state that they were in. That's really important. They were actually going in and out from the temple, making offerings and sacrifices, not thinking a thing. And God's saying, actually, there is a great disconnect um, in what you're offering and how you see me. But they were completely blind to it. And so here's how it ultimately shows up in their offerings is God says, you despise my name. Listen carefully. As a result, you have given me polluted offerings. When we have a diminished view of God, it waters down what we're willing to offer to God in our lives. The key to a life laid out before God is restoring the greatness back to our view again. This is why we're so big on beholding the Lord. Because when the eyes of the heart get hit with the spirit of wisdom and revelation of God, that touches every part of our life. And what happens is because they despise his name, they give polluted offerings. How? Three ways. Number one, they gave offerings... Remember, this is Old Covenant with animals, but they gave offerings that, of animals that were sick and lame. They were supposed to be pure. They were defiled. They gave defiled offerings, right? It, it would be like immorality, I think, in the New Covenant. Number two, listen carefully. God says, you've given offerings to me that were taken by a violent hand. What he means is the priests were actually stealing animals and then offering up stolen animals to God. Now, on surface level, you say, well, the stealing itself is what's wrong. It is, but when I sat on this a few years ago, I felt like the Lord was showing me it's deeper than that. The idea that they, they stole and offered that means what they offered had no cost to themselves. They took something, offered it up, but it didn't cost them anything. It was a co- if there's no sacrifice in our sacrifice, it's not a sacrifice. <laughs> they lost. They weren't willing to give him something that would cost them because they didn't know the value of the one they were offering to. You follow me? And then the last thing that comes forth is God says, as you come into my house to give offerings, you say, what a weary, how wearisome this is to us. 
He says something like, you snort your nostrils, which I imagine is his face of like, again, we have to do this. They lost sight of his greatness, so what happened? All was stripped from their hearts, and as a result, now coming before him to give him offerings, which as new covenant priests, worship, intercession, these things, it's a job, it's monotonous, it's a checklist. They lost zeal, desire, they lost expectation for God to move, right? Um, I... I think when I look back now on, on COVID-19, which was a really wild time, um, I think about those first few months and just what, what was going on. And I don't say this like heavy-handed, but I, I, one of the things I noticed, I feel like when the church is shut down for a few months, I feel like it kind of exposed how wearisome we felt coming to church was. And I, it was almost like this subtlety of, man, we got our Sundays back. <laughs> It, it, it felt like this, like, thing of, like, it's not that bad. At least we get to, like, stay home on Sundays. And I just feel like God in his love is, like, man, we need the greatness of God in our gatherings to understand, like, the privilege and the power and what it means to come before him. So all of that to say this is what's happening. I want you to look at verse 11 now. God goes as far in verse 10 to actually say, I wish that the doors would be shut, that the, the, the fire on the altar would not be, you know, kindled in vain. But then verse 11 comes. We'll close right here. It's one of, this promise has marked me, guys. It's this great prophetic promise that I believe God has invited our body into, and I want our hearts to be tethered to it. And here's what God says. In the midst of all of this despising of his name, verse 11, it's on the board if you don't see it. Here's this prophetic promise. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, that means from east to west, so all around the world, or from morning to night, Okay, in the prayer room, we do morning and night. There's a lot of reasons why we do that. From morning to night, from east to west, look what he says. My name will be great among the nations. And in every place among the nations he's talking about, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So in the midst of all of this shaking and the priesthood losing sight of the greatness of God's name, God begins to lift up through Malachi this prophecy saying, wait a minute, there is a day coming, he says, where in every place around the nations, incense and offerings that are pure will be restored because my name will be heralded as great. And I want you to know, this is a new covenant promise because the, the concept of incense and offerings was reserved for the priesthood. But now it's saying, listen to this, only the priests in Israel had the, had the, had the um, privilege to come before God to do this. It was the most sacred responsibility. That which was most sacred even in God's people is now one day going to be opened up to the nations. He's speaking of one has come who's made us a royal priesthood. And now we're living in a time where God is establishing places all among the nations where they're entering into their priesthood identity and they're giving up offerings and incense. David understood this in Old Covenant. He said, the lifting of my hands is like worship. The burning of incense is my prayers. Man, this is so connected to who we are as a body that in the prayer room, we have our priestly identity coming forth. Worship, intercession, that's pure. Like we're coming around to behold and the greatness of his name is going public and going out. And we're seeing him and being touched and living from that place, amen? So we want to build a house for the name of the Lord. We want the greatness of God's name to be here. We say, God, shake us. <laughs> Bring us into this place. Um, God, where it's, it's no longer just a common thing, although it's free and alive. God, it's such a privilege to be here. Amen. Why don't we
We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.